take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter number 5. It's been a while since we looked at Romans, but we'll go back to Romans. I think the last time we may have given a sermon from Romans, <laughs> we, <laughs> there's more like there's more than one of us up here. The last time I gave a sermon from Romans might have been the Sunday of the Great Disturbance when uh, a gentleman who was here who was in a little bit of angst over what we were talking about that day, and uh, I think that might be the last time I gave a sermon from Romans, which has been quite some time ago. And our text is a long, is a long passage, it's a long passage, but you know, just a very short outline, just one page, and uh, I'll read it as we go along. Oh, would you join me in making a short prayer together before I start the sermon? Father, I pray that you would help me to give this sermon. I pray that you would give me the help of the Holy Spirit. And um, by faith in, in your promise, I, I ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that you would um, help me to say the things that are right to say. And I pray most of all that the preaching of your word would be attended by the Holy Spirit's presence in the heart and mind of each person. And I pray that you would clear out the dross, the pollution of the world that we might hear your word. That old Presbyterian preacher, Ligon Duncan, he says, your word is very clear, but our minds are very clouded. And now we pray for clarity of mind to both speak and hear. Lord, I pray that by your word you would make us, and by your grace you would break us. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I've shared the gospel in my life with hundreds of people at their doorstep. And uh, when I went to college, I was, they taught me how to be a personal soul winner, how to go around and talk to people about the Lord. And, and I learned the Romans road and how to talk to people about the gospel, how to share my faith with people in, a, in, a, uh, in an orderly and fairly rapid fashion. And that's how I learned to, to be a soul winner, to, to share the gospel with people. And I like doing that. I like talking to people about the gospel. I like going door to door, doing that kind of thing. And uh, I've given the gospel at people's doors hundreds of times to people. But most of the people I've shared the gospel with have rejected it, which is an interesting thing to me. And, they, and, and all of them have had really good reasons to them for rejecting the gospel. One lady told me that she didn't need to be saved because she was good enough on her own. Another lady told me she was going to heaven because she was a deacon's wife. And I don't know if you deacon's wives knew that's how it worked. <laughs> and, uh, and lots of men have told me they don't need the gospel because, to quote them, I'm a pretty good dude. And their example of their own piety was usually something like this. I've never killed anybody. I've never robbed anybody. I've always tried to do the right thing by other people. Now, how many of you would say that you've tried to do the right thing by other people your whole life? Now, I raise my hand as an example to you, <laughs> not to say that I've done that, because <laughs> I was a big brother, <laughs> and big brothers usually make somebody's life miserable. One time in Texas, I was uh, witnessing to a man. We were sitting in his living room, and uh, I showed him the gospel. And he said, you know, I really would like to be saved. I really would like to become a Christian. He said, but I, I can't. And I said, why, why can't you? He said, well, it's because I, I got some things I got to take care of in my life first. 
And we were sitting there, we were sitting in his, in his living room, and he had a, you know, he was drinking beer, and you know, all the normal stuff that people do. But he kind of looked around and said, you know, I've got to clean up my life before I can come to Christ. That is a very com- that's a very common thing. A lot of people feel like to come to Christ, they've got to get themselves squared away first and then come to Jesus. Because they don't know the old hymn, Christ receiveth sinful men. They don't know that. They think Christ receiveth those who have made themselves ready for him. But that's not how it works. And so these people have rejected the gospel. A lot of people, they think they have to clean up in order for Jesus to save them. And when they hear that, no, that's not right, they can't believe it. They can't believe that Jesus would want them like they are. It's too good to be true. You know the old adage, if it's too good to be true, then what? It is. But it is true. Jesus will have sinners. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Isaiah one eighteen. Let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Come to Christ. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that if you preach the gospel the right way, or the way that Paul does, the reaction to the gospel presentation will be found in Romans chapter 6, verse number 1. Because in Romans 1 to 4, the apostle Paul has said, Come to Christ without works. Come to Christ and be saved. Believe on Him and have your sins forgiven. Believe on Him and be justified from all your past guilt and future sins. Come to Him. And this seems to be too good to be true. And in chapter 5, the apostle really, he nails it down. He says that we've been justified by faith, verse number 1. And then he goes through and talks about original sin and says that through Adam, all people are corrupted. Through Adam, all people are corrupted. And then he says, but through Christ, all people can be made righteous. And what's interesting in chapter 5 is it's presented that you had no choice in whether or not you were a sinner or not, because you didn't have a choice. You were born a sinner. To use the vernacular, you were tore up (laughs) from the ground up. You You are wrecked as soon as you're born. Psalm 58 says, as soon as we be born... Like babes, we come forth speaking lies. Now, Valerie and I have had five children together, and we're glad glad for all of them. We didn't have to teach any of them how to sin. They all came by it naturally. I can still remember one time going behind the recliner. I think I was helping Valerie vacuum one time. I moved the recliner out to vacuum behind it, and behind it I found a whole bunch of little candy wrappers because the the recliner was in a corner, you know. And behind behind it on the floor there were a whole bunch of wrappers of all kinds of candies. And I thought, who has done this? You know, I, 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 I think I know who did it, but I'm not sure right now who, who it was exactly. But at the time, I thought, wow, this kid's, been, this kid's been grabbing candy and hiding out in a great hiding place and enjoying their stolen goods. So we, we didn't have to teach them that. That comes out, it's in their nature. And so... In chapter 5, Paul says that this life that we get through Christ, it's actually presented in chapter 5 as if you didn't have a choice either. But the big point of chapter 5 is to say is that you did nothing to make yourself guilty before God because it's transmitted to you through Adam. 
And it's also true that you do nothing to make yourself acceptable to God. That's kind of the big point at the end of chapter 5. In chapter, the last, look at the last, the last few words of chapter 5. Listen to the reading. Sin reigned in death. Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's always through Him. It's always through Him. Now, my friends, I want you to know something. I want you to know that, first of all, salvation or justification is yours without any cost at all. It doesn't cost you anything to believe in Jesus. To be saved, it doesn't cost you anything. You don't have to offer any sacrifice or any offerings to God. Nothing in your hand you bring. Simply to the cross you cling. Your standing with God is not affected by sins you commit even after He has saved you. Once you are saved by grace through faith, you are saved once and forever. And the sole responsibility for your salvation belongs to Jesus Christ and not you. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Now in our passage today, we read some wonderful things. I want to talk about five of these things. Let's talk about, first of all, our status in Adam naturally. Our status in Adam naturally is in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 5. Listen to the reading of God's word. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, excuse me, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the, through the one man, Jesus Christ. The main point of this passage is that no one is exempt from Adam's original corruption. Everyone is corrupted. We all have a sin nature through Adam. And everywhere, and we know this is universally true, because everywhere you go, you find two things in the world. You find that people die, and you find that people commit sin, no matter what culture you go to. When I was a kid, I read history books, and they're kind of sanitized, you know. Maybe, maybe read about the American Indians. You read some kind of old, old, old uh, history of the American Indians. You think, man, they were just living like just, uh, just in innocence on the plains. <laughs> But then you get older, you read different history books and see that those people were not living innocent, innocent, lovely lives on the plains. They were barbarians doing horrible things to one another. I used to tell this to Valerie when we first got married that there was in the Apache Indian tribe, if a wife was caught committing adultery, you know what they would do? The husband would take a knife and slit her nostrils. <laughs> Marked forever. And that was what she got if she was lucky. She was lucky. If you've ever seen that, that great classic western, Lonesome Dove, you hear a blue duck describe what he's going to do to this white captive girl he's taken. 
He says, I'm going to cut a hole in your belly and pull out a piece of your insides and tie it to a bush and leave you. And the coyotes will come and devour you. What a vicious atrocity. That's, now, that's not, that's not made up stuff. That's the kind of thing that these people who lived in innocence with, at peace with nature and their world, that's the kind of things they did to one another. Read Empire of the Moon, the story of Quanta Parker, the Comanche, the child of a, of a white captive, followed by a Comanche chief. And you'll, you'll see that people do all kinds of wicked things to everybody. When I was a kid, my dad had this little yellow and red book. It was called Peace Child on the front of it. And it opens up with a description of this, of this uh, uh, native uh, New Guinean person going to visit a tribe down the river. And he'd been making friends with them for a long time because he thought that he could make peace between these two villages that were kind of at war with each other. And he would go down there and talk to them and, and just make friends with them. And then one day he went down there and they were friendlier than ever. And as he was sitting there eating a big old bowl of goodies, his host came up behind him and struck him with a battle axe. Whack! And the book describes in some detail how they cut him up and ate him. And these are people who are living way out in the woods, in the wilderness of New Guinea, in the bush. This is what they're doing to one another. Lying, killing, and defrauding one another. This is what man is by nature. Man is by nature rotten. Man is by nature sinful. That's what we are naturally. And in that sinful state, we are guilty of trespasses before God. And because we are guilty before God, we're going to die. And sin reigns. And death reigns over us because of the sins. That's your status naturally without Jesus Christ in your life. You are a sinner before God and you are under the reign of death. And you're going to die for your very own sins you've committed. And you're going to perish. Now the second thing I want you to notice is in verses 18 to 20 of chapter 5 is what our status is in Christ supernaturally. Listen to the reading. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, and where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the point here is to show us that the only escape from Adam's corruption, the only way to be delivered from the guilt of the trespasses, is through Jesus Christ. That's your only avenue of escape. That's your only avenue of hope is Jesus. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. This is Romans 3, 23. We'll read five verses. Now I want you to, if you, if you write stuff down, if you mark stuff in your Bible, some people don't do that, but maybe make a little note to yourself somewhere. These are the, if you're going to get a Christian tattoo, you want to get some verses tattooed on your body, get these tattooed on your body. All right? 
It'll have to be on your back or on your belly because this is a lot of words. <laughs> but if you want to get, a tat, get, get this tattooed on there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was, it was to show His righteous, righteousness at the present time so that it might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. This is where salvation is gotten for you. It is through Christ and through none other. Not through self-reformation. Not through self-flagellation. It is through faith in Christ alone where salvation is made. Notice what it says. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the most pernicious of errors is the error of justification by works. You're not justified before God by works. You're justified before God by faith. By faith. Now you may be sitting here and you're 40 years old or you're 50 years old, and you, and you look back across your life, and you've done a lot of dastardly deeds. You've done a lot of hell-raising. You've committed a whole litany of sins. Of course, that could be true of somebody who's 19, couldn't it? As you look back across your life, the magnitude, the enormity of your guilt, it all can be forgiven it can all be set aside through one act of faith. And this is where people trip. Are you kidding me, they say? Through one act of faith, a million sins can be forgiven, can be atoned for. Through one act of faith, horrible, horrible sins can be forgiven. Yes, that's what Scripture says. That's what God's word says. Jesus didn't come down here to die for the nearly bad or the almost good. He came and died for the vilest of sinners. Remember, 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ has come into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, Paul says. And when Paul says that, he's not just, that's, not, that's not just preacher talk. That's real honest-to-God confession by Paul. Because the Apostle Paul was complicit in the murder of Christian people. I've often thought about this. What would it have been like if you lived in Jerusalem in Paul's day, and one of your brothers or sisters or mom or dad or husband or wife or even your child was killed by the Jewish ecclesiastical authority, and Paul was at the head of that. And then Paul becomes a Christian, and he walks into your house of worship. And there's the guy sitting on the front pew who's, who, was, who was part of the crowd that stoned or killed your loved one. But now he's a Christian. Now he's joined your team. Man, think, think, about, think about the feels there. 
And as Paul's a Christian, as he knows what he has done, he's haunted by his past sometimes. You ever been haunted by your past? Haunted by those little ghosts that come out and remind you of what you are? I can't tell you how many times Satan has come to me and said, you know, you're a dog. You ain't worth shooting. This this, this is exactly how I felt this morning coming here to give this sermon. Before the service, I really wasn't too keen on being here today, like some of you. (laughs) I felt a little bit depresso in my spirito. Kind of out of sorts. And we're singing the songs. I was trying to sing myself into a happy place. Didn't work. <laughs> Try to think myself into a, happy, into a happy spot. Didn't work. Now I'm trying to preach myself happy. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to work. Because as I'm getting ready to come and give this sermon, all I can think about are sins. Sins I committed in thought, word, or deed. Because I'm a sinner just like you. In fact, sometimes I don't know if anybody is as bad a sinner as me because I know me really well. And I have this, these voices saying, look at you, look at you, look at you. And to quote my friend Don Fortner, Don said, that's exactly what Satan wants you to do. He wants you to constantly look at yourself. He does not want you to look to Christ. Don says, when I look at myself, I always feel condemned. I always feel like a sinner. But it is when I look at Christ, that's when I feel saved. That's when I feel forgiven. That's when I feel redeemed. Looking unto Jesus, Hebrew says, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Why? So sinners could be reconciled to God the Father. Our status with God supernaturally is one of righteousness. It is one of holiness. We have been justified by Him. By Him. Now look at chapter 6. Now we have this new status of justified. We are innocent before God. How are we supposed to live? In chapter 6, verse 1, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In chapter 5, he said that the law, it entered so that the transgression might be highlighted, might be magnified. You see, if there is no law, it's hard to know what's right or wrong, right? Has your, have your, kid, has your kid ever said, Hey, you've never said that was wrong before, but now you're saying it. You ever had that kind of experience? You're like, Well, I may have not said it, but it was real. The law magnifies, it highlights wrongdoing, it highlights sin. And so God let mankind live about 2,000 years before he gave him the Ten Commandments. Then once the Ten Commandments are on the books, now it's obvious how bad everybody really is. When you apply the law to people's lives, they, you measure them by God's holy standard, that's when their sinfulness is made apparent to them. And so the law comes in and makes sin look more glorious Make, make sin look, look more glorious. Make sin look more inglorious. And so the natural question is, if I'm saved, if everything's set aside just by a single act of faith, if I'm made righteous through Christ, 
Should I just keep on sinning? If it doesn't matter how I live, if I'm going to heaven, shall I just continue to sin that grace may abound? Should I keep on sinning and doing more sins? Should I keep on violating God's law in greater and greater ways so that I can say, hey, look at how bad I am. I'm still going to heaven. Is that what we should do? And what's Paul say in chapter 6, verse 1? By no means. How should we live? How should we live in this new status that we have of being justified, of being completely sinless before God? How should we live? Verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, buried, therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life? How should we now walk? We've been resurrected with him. Now this is an interesting phrase here. This, this is this actually this passage of Scripture Verses 1 to 4 caused me to shift over to the other series for a while. Because the question is, is what kind of baptism is this in chapter 6? What kind of baptism is this? I look back to some of my old Bibles, and some of my old Bibles I've written the word water in the margin, and then I draw a line through it. <laughs> is this water baptism or spirit baptism? You know the majority of commentators say it's water baptism? And I think that's probably the right view, water baptism. Sometimes people say it can't be water because that means it's saying that water, being baptized in water, is a part of our salvation. But we know that's not true. Because Paul's already told us what it takes to be saved, doesn't it? Romans 3, 28. For we conclude that a man is justified apart from what? Works of the law. So just because it's talking about water baptism doesn't mean it's saying it's connected to our salvation. He's already told us nothing's connected to that except faith. What he's doing is calling Christians who have been baptized, Christians who were baptized as believers, Christians who were baptized as cognizant people, not when they're five years old or six years old, but people who are baptized as grown-ups, calling them to remember their baptism. And in their baptism, they identified with Christ's death and resurrection. That they died and they rose from the water. And when they come out of the water, they're lifted up. It's, it's symbolic. It's, it's typological. It's a picture. We've died to sin. Now we've been resurrected to live. Resurrected to, to walk in the newness of life. And Paul says, you need to remember your baptism. Remember what you, why you were baptized. Remember what you united with, you identified with Christ? He's saying, remember Jesus. And don't live like you don't know Jesus. We walk in the newness of life. You see, my friends, through Christ, we have a clean slate. And the Old Testament, which is so helpful to us, says here that His mercies are new for us when? Every day. Have you ever had a day when, as a Christian, you felt like you really hit a home run? Anybody? Come on, be honest. You know you went to work, and one of your co-workers was heartbroken and sad, and you went up to him, put your arm around him, and said, hey, man, let me have a word of prayer with you. And you prayed with him, or somebody asked you a question, you gave him some spiritual advice, or you had, or you had the opportunity to a co-worker to 
Put it in their back and you decided not to. <laughs> Ever been there? I used to work at a factory and uh, everybody raise your hand. Statues limitations are probably out for this. But every, every supervisor had a workstation with their own computer and they could log in. And we had this, we had this we had thing called intranet, an internal internet thing. And we had company email. How many of you guys got company email at your job? Just goes to the company? We did. And, and, you know, if somebody left their workstation open, they're supposed to lock it when you leave it, but if somebody left their workstation open, guess what we would do? I say we because I wasn't the only center <laughs> where I worked at. You go over there, if you, in the address line, if you, in the two section, you could just type the word all, and it would go company-wide. And we would put some very interesting messages in there. <laughs> to all, hit send, and then delete it out of the sent folder. My favorite thing to do is say, I, I quit, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, but after a while, they catch on, you know, and they tempted to do things like that, and then you didn't do it. I mean, I, there's been some days when I feel like I've really done good as a Christian. That's all I'm trying to say with all that foolishness. Now, have there been days when you really felt like you did really bad as a Christian? There's been times when, you know, I bit the house. With, your Christian life usually is flushed out mostly with the people closest to you all the time, your wife and kids. There's been times when I've been a wonderful Christian husband to Valerie. There's been times when I'm surprised she didn't club me to death in my sleep. Because sometimes we just really fail. We just really drop the ball. But that status never changes. We're saved. We're saved. Now, number four. With this new status that we have, we're trying to live better and better. We're trying to be good Christians every day. We're failing, but trying to do better. Now, this whole teaching is very comforting to us because in verses 5 to 11, Paul says we can live without fear because you cannot scare dead people. Our failures as Christians do not toss us out of the kingdom of God. Listen to verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's held under sin's bondage. The authorized version, I think here, says under the dominion of sin, the power of sin. Crucified with him, risen with him, so that we would not be enslaved by sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. This is, this is so important. You'll see this again in chapter number 7. Once a person has been killed, they're set free from their sin. I read this in the paper one time, that, and some legal scholar, somebody who has knowledge of the law, may know exactly what this is called. But this person was, uh, was under indictment, and they died before the trial, and the court had to go in and set aside the indictment because they said the guy's dead, so we can't, do any, can't, we can't take any further action. You see, when you're, when you're dead, you're free from the penalties. They can't do anything to you. You're free from it. 
In Kansas, one time I was talking to a guy, and he said, the bill collectors are calling all the time trying to collect a debt from my mom. My mom's dead. He said, so I tell him to go to Crestwood Cemetery, lot 232. Inquire there. <laughs> but they couldn't get anything out of her because she's dead. You have died to sin. The one who has died has been set free from sin. The only way you can be set free from sin is through Christ. I'm probably going to have to stop the sermon before I get to the last point. Because I really want to kind of drive this home if I can. How many of you are alive right now? That's all of us. And the only way you can be set free from sin is if you die. Well, so you're stuck. But Scripture says here in Romans 6, in Galatians 2.20, Galatians 6.14, it says that we died in Christ. When Christ went to the cross, all those who were chosen in Christ, Ephesians 1, were present with him on the cross, and he died on the cross. We died on the cross. If you're here today and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you died on the cross. So how can I have died? I wouldn't even alive yet. It's because it was already in, in God's economy. God's people were chosen him, set in Christ, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Written in the book of life, all that stuff's in the Bible. Christ died on the cross. He died there. And you died there with him if you're a believer. You died there too. And if he died there, he was buried, and three days later, what did he do? He rose from the dead. So you died with him, and you've risen with him. This debt of sin's been paid. And now you're resurrected, and once you die... The sin can't hurt you anymore. Look at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. We died with him. Now, Michigan. Try to show you this works if I can in just a minute or two. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, what did you receive? You received justification, sanctification, glorification. All those things are going to happen. All your sins were forgiven. But John 3.16 says that we all know that verse, right? For God so loved the world, that gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him should not what? But have. There you go. You already have it. You have everlasting life. You died in Christ. You're risen in Christ. And now, just like Jesus, you're never going to die again. Somebody says, now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. I've been to a lot of funerals. Sure, you've seen bodies laid down. But you've never seen a dead soul. You guys remember, there's an old Disney cartoon back in the day. It was about Johnny Appleseed. Johnny Appleseed's going around and He's doing stuff. And Johnny Appleseed finally dies. And then an angel comes and says, Johnny, you know, the Lord needs some apple trees planted in heaven. <laughs> and Johnny, he's like, oh, I'll go. And so his little, his little, you see him, he, he's going with the angel. And then, he goes, and then all of a sudden he looks over his shoulder and goes, whoa. And he sees his body laying back there on the ground. And he says, now, wait a minute. How can I be going up there and my body's back there? And the angel says to him, says, Johnny, that's, Johnny, that's just your husk. 
<laughs> That's just the shell of your peanut. <laughs> You're going to heaven. Christians, if you put your faith in Christ, you died already. And you've resurrected with him. And you have eternal life, and, and that can't stop you. That cannot be taken away from you. We were driving back from Kansas one time. I was listening to a sermon on, the, on, the, on, my, on my phone. And I'm driving along, and the preacher, he was, he was really he was smacking that. You got everlasting life. You could never die. You could never die. You could never die. Man, I was just, I was just basking in that reality. Nothing could hurt me, man. I'm never going to die. We're driving down the road from Kansas back to Oklahoma. And all of a sudden, the cloud turned, the sky turned green. And the winds came up. Rain is falling, just gushers from heaven. Hail, the whole nine yards, thunder and lightning. <clears throat> and I'm driving into it, not even hitting the brake. Cruise set on 110. <laughs> you know, I'm never going to die, never going to die. <laughs> Nothing can hurt me. <laughs> I'm driving this speed limit out. I'm just basking in it. I'm realizing the reality of it. I'm invincible until God calls me home. I'm just driving home, man. And then all of a sudden, the voice of sanity comes from the passenger side seat. <laughs> Terry, slow down. <laughs> and like, we're never going to die. We're never going to die. <laughs> I'm basking in a spiritual reality, and she's over here in the real world going, slow down, dummy. <laughs> If you, if you are in Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, you, that's what you've got. You've already, you've already cheated death. Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 15, Death, grave, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? How can he say that? Because he died in Christ, resurrected with Christ, and has eternal life. And all that he has before him is the glory of God. That's why Paul can write in Philippians and say, I'm in a twist here. I'm in a straight. I want to go to heaven and I want to stay here. He says, but I know if I leave this world, I'll go to heaven, which is far better. And my friends, the only people who have that kind of hope, who have that status, are those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to have eternal life, if you want to have all your sins taken care of, if you want to have a clean slate with God every day, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Put it anywhere else and you're in bad shape. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and go to heaven. Put your faith in yourself. Put your faith in church membership or good works or baptism or communion. Put it anywhere else and you're doomed. Put your faith in Christ. Put it there now while you can. And then live for him. Live in that reality. We're not saved to sin. We're saved to serve, to serve Him. Now let's have a short prayer. Father, I pray that you'd help these words to live in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and glorious name. Amen.